think in a culture where you have to be somebody, but you have to be that somebody all the time, and you have to have followers, and they have to approve of you, and they have to like you, and you have to constantly be performing a version of popularity or significance, what does that do to people on the fringes mm-hmm. of their society who are not wanted and desired, who are not liked, who are not popular? I think it drives you to a place of anger, really, and powerlessness, and that can create a really bizarre impulse in return. Fatima Bhutto is part of the Pakistani political dynasty. She was born in Kabul, Afghanistan, and grew up in exile in Syria before returning to Pakistan. Her family's history is one of subsequent tragedies. Her grandfather, a former prime minister of Pakistan, was hanged by his successor. Her uncle died from suspected poisoning. Her father, a prominent political activist, was killed in a spray of police bullets. In her memoir, Songs of Blood and Sword, Fatima Bhutto holds her aunt, Benazir Bhutto, Pakistan's prime minister at the time of the killing, and her husband, Zadari, responsible. Zadari was jailed for the murder, but became president after his wife was assassinated while campaigning in an election. He's still a member of the National Assembly today. Fatima Bhutto's most recent book, The Runaways, is a bold story about radicalism, belonging and Muslim identity. I'm Georgina Godwin, and to tell us more about the book and her intricate family history, Fatima joined me in London on The Big Interview. Fatima, the story begins, really, with your grandfather. Tell Mm -hmm. us about him. Well, my grandfather, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, was Pakistan's first democratically elected head of state. And he was in power in Pakistan at a time when the country was really fresh from partition and independence. And he brought with him the hope and the promise of something new. It was a moment, I think, where Pakistanis felt that the world was open to them, where the future was open to them. And when he was removed in a coup d'etat by a CIA-backed dictator, General Ziaul Haq, that ended that moment for Pakistan. And what followed was the Pakistan really you know today, one in which the army has incredible control over the country, one in which a nation has been quite brutalized. And all that goes back to General Ziaul Haq's 1977 martial law. So a lot of the laws we have in place in the country against women, you know, against minorities, you know, the blasphemy laws, all those date back to Zia. So my grandfather really, I think, represented something to to the country that we haven't really seen since then. Not, at least I haven't seen it in my lifetime. And I'm 36 years old. I've grown up in the shadow of Ziaul Haq's dictatorship. And your grandfather was hanged? He was. The family was never allowed to see the body, so we were told he was hanged, but they never actually knew. The dictatorship buried him before his family could see him. But he was arrested, he was kept in solitary confinement, and then he was killed. But the family political dynasty continued? It did continue, but I don't think anyone really has managed to represent those ideals that the family and politics first began with. And Pakistan's history since then has been such a choppy one, you know, even in periods where we've had democratic rule in Pakistan. I can't really say it's been very democratic, you know. Holding elections is the most basic step of a democracy, but it's certainly not the only one. Now, your father vowed to resist that, Mm -hmm. didn't he? Yes, he did. And my father's life really was defined by 
what happened to his father. My father was 25 years old. Um, when his father was executed and he had spent, you know, two years traveling around the world lobbying for his father's life, which I wrote about in Songs of Blood and Sword. And he resisted the dictatorship and he spent 16 years in exile from Pakistan. So when he returned back to Pakistan, he had been away for 16 years. He returned back in 1994 because he'd won an election. So he was a member of parliament and he was killed not even two years into his return to his country. Let's talk about his time away, because mm. that's when you were born, in fact. Mm. You were born in Afghanistan. Yes, I was born in Kabul under curfew. Must have been an extraordinary <laughs> childhood. Well, I was quite young when we left Kabul. I was, I think, only three or four months old when my family left. But then they went to Syria, and so I grew up in Damascus. And the Damascus of my childhood really wasn't anything like one sees today in the news. I mean, certainly if you were a political opponent of the governments, it would have been an incredibly difficult place to be. But on the other hand, if you were a woman, if you were a minority, if you were gay, if you were... Syria was really quite an idyllic, calm, quiet place. And the Assad family was, in fact, very kind to you. Well, they gave us asylum, really. They kept us and allowed us to live in Syria. And so we did. I was 12 years old. When we left, but, you know, I thought of myself as Syrian for so long because it was the only home I really knew. So until the war would go back all the time and I would really like to go back now. I mean, I don't know if it's safe. I may be Damascus, but I don't know. So it is, I suppose, one of the first homes I lost was Syria. There must have been quite an interesting time between going back to Pakistan and before the appalling tragedy of of your Mm. father's death. Well, you know, I grew up in the way I guess many exiles grew up, with this constant promise of home and the return to home. So growing up, I was seven years old the first time I visited Pakistan. I'd never seen it until then. And it was a place that I knew really through my father and, and through his memories and his his longing really to be home. So I had this ultra-romantic notion of what Pakistan was and what it meant and what it could be. And he would say all the time, you know, this year we'll go home, this year we'll go home, it'll be next year we go home, and of course we never did. And then one year I remember he said it, and it started to become true. So for my father it was a very exciting, and of course, you know, it came with a lot of anxiety and threat of violence, and was a, a turbulent time. But for him the idea of his homecoming was so exciting because he loved his country so much and he he sort of lived in limbo when he was away from it. You know, he never really learned Arabic, even though he spent, I mean, 16 years, I mean, well, less in Syria, but because he kind of lived in this sort of transit period. For me, it was a little sad to leave Syria because I, that was the only place I ever knew. All my friends were there, my school was there. Everything I knew about the world was in Syria. But I was also very excited to, finally go home with my father. And once we reached Pakistan, of course, the reality of going home was much starker and less romantic and more terrifying than... And less anonymous. People absolutely knew who you were. Less anonymous, yes. Because growing up in Syria, you know, nobody knew who I was. Nobody, Nobody cared. Nobody knew. I went to an international school. There was only one other Pakistani in the entire school. 
who arrived just around 1919. His name was, unfortunately for him, Saddam Hussein. You know, so there was a sense that I was, I was sort of one of anyone at school. I never really felt anyone looking at me or watching me or anything like that. And then in Pakistan, of course, it was a different experience. But I think I was lucky enough to have not grown up in that because it made me forever suspicious mm. <laughs> of attention. You talked to your father about him writing his own life story. Yes. Actually, it was just before my father was killed. It was his birthday two days before he was killed. And we'd had dinner and we were sitting up late at night and talking. And I was asking him all these things. And I said to him, you know, your life is so interesting. Why don't you write a book? And he said, just sort of off the cuff, he said, well, you know, you do it for me when I'm gone. And I was I was thrilled, obviously. I was very close to my father, but I was really excited at the idea that he would allow me or trust me with such a responsibility. And, you know, I wanted to start taking notes immediately. And, and he sort of laughed at me and said, no, no, when I'm gone, not now. And, of course, two days later, he was gone. And so it was always in the back of my head, the idea that I had this promise to my father. And I started the research for Songs of Blood and Sword long before I wrote it. I started writing it in 2008 because I had a sense that the people who I held responsible for my father's killing were going to come back to government. And I thought, if they come back to government, they're going to erase things. So I no longer had any excuse to wait. At the time of his death, your aunt, his sister, Benazir Bhutto, was in charge of Pakistan. Mm -hmm. You describe that night. Tell Mm -hmm. us what happened. Well, my father was a member of parliament and he was a very vocal critic of his sister's government and especially his sister's husband, who went on, Asif Zadar, who went on to become president of Pakistan after my aunt's death. And he was coming home, my father, that night from um, a public meeting on the outskirts of Karachi. And when he reached the road of our house, which is a road, I mean, and quite a, you know, a well-populated part of the city. We live near a lot of embassies, including the British High Commission. And the street had been shut. All the streetlights had been closed. There was no lights on the street. And about 100 policemen had been placed in sniper positions in trees. All the guards of nearby residences had been told to go inside their homes. So it was a coordinated assassination. It was not... Um, something that was done spontaneously. It had been planned very carefully. And very senior police officers were on the road that night. And my father and six other men were killed. They were shot several times, including point blank. And then they were left to bleed on the streets for about an hour before they were moved. All of them were moved, none to hospitals. There's only really one hospital in Karachi that can handle gunshot wounds. None of them were taken there. They were just taken to different clinics and dispensaries and places like that. And I was inside the house while all this was happening. So we could hear the gunfire and the shooting. But you, with your uh, with younger my, brother? With my younger brother. My younger brother and I, uh, my brother was six years old. I was 14. And when the shooting started, because we, you know, we were... <laughs> Karachi kids, we knew what to do in the event of gunfire. We knew to get away from windows. We knew to go to sort of corridors. So I did that. I took my brother into a corridor and closed the doors and kept him there until the shooting stopped. But we didn't know at that time that it was our father who was outside, not just being killed, but being left to bleed to death. And you called your aunt? I did. I called the prime minister's house. Because after the shooting stopped, 
we weren't allowed to leave our house. So when we tried, we were told that there had been a robbery, the police said, and we had to stay inside. But it started to be very clear that something was wrong when my father wasn't coming home. You know, this was in the days before cell phones, so we couldn't text him or call him. And we started to get anxious, and so I called my aunt and was not put through to my aunt. It was her husband who answered the call and said to me, don't you know, your father's been shot. And that's how we found out. And he, of course, is in government now. He's Yes, well, he was, not now. He became prime minister. But all the policemen who were involved in my father's killing, they all hold very senior positions in the police. They hold federal positions in some case. They've been promoted many times in the... Well, now it's 23 years since my father's murder. So in terms of justice, one can't really say that any form of justice has been carried out in the intervening years. Where did you go from there? Well, I was still in school. I was um, in ninth grade, and so I, we remained in Karachi and um, went to school and tried to live normally, as normally as one could. But it was always... It was always there. I mean, any time I left my house or came back to my house, I I crossed the road where my father lost his life. So the memory never really goes away. And not only that, you know, the people involved in his killing were very present too. So they never went away. They were Mm. always there. And then I, you know, I went to university... But first you published yeah. your first book oh, yes. of poetry. Yes, I did. That's right. Um, At be- just 15 years old? I was 15. I had started writing poetry as a school project, and my father was very encouraging about... He was really the reason I became a writer. And I had shown him some of these poems, and you know he had sat with me and, and sent them out <laughs> to publishers and helped me write the letter. and And then after his death, I published them with Oxford University Press in Pakistan in his memory one year one year after his murder. So yes, that's right. I, I published that book and then I had a I guess you would call it a normal life. I went to university. You were at Columbia and at SOAS. And at SOAS, yes. I did my masters here in London at SOAS. And then I went back home to Pakistan and I had another small little book come out after the earthquake in two thousand and five. I went to visit the areas and I'd collected survivor accounts, mainly written by children. And that was published and all the proceeds were given back to a foundation called the Eid Foundation, which is one of the largest in Pakistan, back to child survivors. And then I started writing a newspaper column for a Pakistani paper. And then that's, I suppose, the beginning of all the rest of this. (laughs) And and a a life as a jobbing journalist, really. Yes, yes. Um, So I was, how old was I? I I was 24 when I started writing that column, and from there I wrote Songs of Blood and Sword, and and then that kind of pushed me further into books and away from, from journalism. So Songs of Blood and Sword is the, is the, is the memoir that we've been talking about. Uh, but then came The Shadow of the Crescent Moon. Uh, and this is a book set in really very different circumstances from your own life. Mm-hmm. It's five men. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're in a completely different area, mm-hmm. and all of them have terrible choices to make. Tell, tell us a little about that book. Well, The Shadow of the Crescent Moon takes place over a single morning and it's the story of this family and the three sons of the family who are all going for Friday prayers but cannot pray at the same mosque because it's too dangerous. So in case the mosque is attacked, they all go to different mosques. And it's the story of, these, of the brothers and the families around them 
And it's set in the tribal regions, very close to Pakistan's border with Afghanistan. And it's a story really of a country on fire and how it is that young people, ordinary people, including two women, survive the turbulence of their country while trying to live, while trying to resist it, while trying to have normal lives. And really, that's pretty much the situation the country's in now. It was a story of Pakistan for a very long time. And I'm hesitant to sound too hopeful. I think in many ways, yes, it's still the story of Pakistan. But I think something quite extraordinary has happened over the last few years. I think Pakistan's appetite, Pakistan's people have had to endure so much violence, so much uncertainty, so much instability, that they really push back against it. And so it's been quite nice to see over the past few years a lot of people resisting that, whether it's through arts and culture or protests. But we're a very young population. You know, I always mention it because it, to me it's boggling, but 70% of the country is under 30. And so you see that now, you know, over International Women's Day, there were a lot of protests, you know, young women taking back the roads all over the country. And I am hopeful. I mean, I guess I'm always, I'm never hopeful about the state or the way in which government is conducting itself. But I'm always and increasingly so hopeful about the way in which Pakistani people are choosing to live their lives and how they're choosing to sort of push back mm. against all that. <laughs> in 2015, your next book came out, and that was Democracy. Oh, that was a short story. Yes, God, I forgot about that one. <laughs> that was a short story I did really for Penguin India. It was part of their kind of turn towards e-books. So I did a short story called Democracy, which is basically about Pervez Musharraf's coup, but told in fictional form. With quite a lot of wit to it. <laughs> well, I hope so. I mean, I think that's partly how you survive <laughs> countries like ours. You have to have a sense of humor about yeah. things. Yeah. So, yes, it's a story of, a, of a, a general on a plane that's been stopped from landing. And then little other stories around it, like the story of a, a newsreader who's got to go on, on air and tell the story of a coup. So, yeah, that came out in 2015. And it was quite closely based on, on the coup. But, you know, memories are so short. I'm not sure people noticed it or you'd have to be a certain age to remember the visuals of that coup mm. which I was and interestingly my, my high school swim team was on that plane with General Musharraf which had been denied permission to land and was circling over Karachi airspace with seven minutes of fuel left before his coup was successful so I guess we all feel personally tied up The Runaways mm. which is your latest book, which is, I think, a magnificent piece of work. And it's clear that many, many people agree with me. It's been beautifully reviewed. It has some fantastic blurbs from some very important people. And again, it's a completely different book. It's yes. really unlike anything you've written before. And it really examines, I suppose, the Muslim identity, a young Muslim mm. identity. Just give us the, the premise of the book. Well, The Runaways is about not just radicalism, but I think what the world doesn't want to see about the radicalized. So it's about the lives of these people, very much like anyone, like you or me, growing up between Portsmouth and Karachi, whose lives drift towards this path. And they drift for very different reasons. So they're several characters, but they're all young. Most are Muslim. And their lives, I think, of alienation and isolation and a lot of millennial confusion. 
And so it's a novel about pain, really, and how that leads to things like radicalism today. Mm-hmm. I think dislocation and exile is really, really important in this, and indeed in the, in the life of anybody who feels in that way. There's one wonderful line you, you, you write. Now, this is about one of the characters, Sonny, and his father has left Lucknow and gone off to live in Portsmouth, of, <laughs> of all places. You write, the plane is not strong enough to transport the burden of his expectation across the black waters of exile. That's just such a stunning line. And it just sums up so much of of what that feels like. I mean, you go on then to talk about the smell, the scent of loneliness. And I think anybody who's ever left their home country can completely understand what you mean by that. Well, you know, for South Asians especially, the idea of exile is so painful. You know, we do call it black waters because, you know, at least in the Hindu tradition, which seeps into a lot of, you know, Muslim culture too, coming from India, there's the idea that you you are polluted by leaving your country, that your spirit is defiled by exile and displacement. And so people who do it, do it on the expectation that something really great awaits them on the other side. You know, something beautiful has to be on the other side. Otherwise, you've just destroyed yourself, really, Mm. to make that journey. And so that that section that you just read from is from Sonny's father who who travels really kind of glamoured by what he sees, you know, in James Bond films and expects that England is going to welcome him. And it doesn't. Mm. And what he finds instead is the loneliness of not being accepted, not being included. And also the shock of, of poverty, which exists in England in a completely different way as it exists in India. And, you know, the absence of community which no matter how long he, he stays in England for, he never quite builds up in the same way. And his son's experience, you know, the father still believes that there might be a place for him in England in Portsmouth. But the son's experience, you know, as a second or first generation immigrant, is that there isn't any place. And he resents his father for dragging him out of his own country, where he might have been someone, where he could have been amongst his own, to this place that never really rejects him and never really accepts him Mm. either. And his experience, and I don't think that it's any kind of plot spoiler to say Mm. that he is radicalised, is really born out of that that frustration of being in a place where he feels that he can't fully exist or isn't, isn't fully seen. He wants to be seen. And I think you really pick up on the... I want to use the word zeitgeist here. I dislike it intensely. But but the whole millennial zeitgeist of needing to be seen, needing to be on Instagram, to be on Snapchat, to be out there, to be someone, uh, and eventually to be someone who does something terrible. Yeah, there's this incredible culture, I think, that millennials, whether they're Eastern or Western or radical or not radical, ascribe to, which is this culture of the self. You know, and what is fascinating about today's radicals is that they don't really require secrecy or discretion because they want the same thing a millennial in New York or London wants, which is to go viral. And I think in a culture where you have to be somebody, but you have to be that somebody all the time and you have to have followers and they have to approve of you and they have to like you and you have to constantly be performing a version of popularity or significance what does that do to people on the fringes mm-hmm. of their society who are not wanted and desired, who are not liked, who are not popular, and who don't have something, you know, fascinating to add to a conversation 24 times a day, every day? I think it drives you to a place of 
anger really and powerlessness and that and that can that can create a really bizarre impulse in return mm. and so sunny does feed into that you know sunny i think tries to find belonging in many different ways he tries to find it in his school he can't he tries to find it in his community he can't he goes to the mosque and doesn't even find it there because they don't understand what exactly he feels so alienated by and he's sort of groomed by a cousin he's groomed by a cousin who comes into his life at this vulnerable moment and says why are you fighting here they don't need us here but there is a place where you can be powerful and you can be seen and that place needs you now urgently and of course this for him and indeed for the other the other characters in the book who are drawn also mm-hmm. to the caliphate mm-hmm. uh religion really has nothing to do with it it really doesn't you know and i think this is maybe what is not clear in the west but for for those of us who live outside has always been pretty clear that the people joining these these fundamentalist movements are drawn to it not because it feeds into a religion that they ascribe to but because these are cults of power and violence and like a, a ferocious sense of significance but religion actually is you know even according to MI5 is a is an insulator against radicalism it's not a feeder to radicalism and we we see it in the news all the time you know the people who go off and join these organizations don't know the first thing about religion you know they're buying the quran for dummies off amazon before traveling and they have this kind of diluted chinese whisper version of something they consider to be a religion but it's never actually grounded in any religious identity mm. or belonging so how does one address this anti-islam feeling around the world where people uneducated people or unthinking people mm. uh, equate the religion with terrorism well i think you know we're seeing so much of this now after the shooting in new zealand you know many people are coming forward to say that the media is responsible for a lot of that anti-islam feeling and i think it's 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 fed by this sort of cabal <laughs> of right-wing politicians you know newspapers that just want to sell copies and how do you sell copies of paper how do you do clickbait you terrify people and so you have to terrify them constantly all the time and the fastest way to do that is to other an entire group of people to reduce them to some some tiny terrifying story and partly why i wanted to write the runaways is to do the opposite of that to say yes there is violence there is this problem it doesn't come from religion and in fact everyone is implicated in that problem you know the the 20 year long wars in iraq and afghanistan are a huge feeder to radical groups you know the politics that we see all around us you know donald trump's speeches you know those are huge feeders but it's not islam that does it mm. it's not the intrinsic experience of being muslim um and and it's offensive i think it's really wounding to many of us who live in a world that isn't run by you know i don't know the sun or fox news or you know we have a much wider experience and it's sad not to see that wide experience reflected in the world around us so i hope this novel does that partly and and certainly there are many other great writers from pakistan india iran the middle east publishing and i think we have to read more of that mm, absolutely we are going to read more of you though because you're working on something new on popular culture yes so the book that i'm working on now is not going to be a novel it's a book um of non-fiction 
reportage on the new global pop cultures coming out. And they're not coming up from the Anglo-Saxon world. No. They're coming from Asia. You and I have collaborated a lot, <laughs> talked, talked a lot about K-pop. In fact, I think yes. we're planning a trip to go off to Korea. Oh, so. we should. Yes, we absolutely should. Because I just for the record, think we should state that we are obviously academically uh, totally. and anthropologically interested in K-pop <laughs> while unfortunately being interested in the music as well. <laughs> as soon as this is over, we're going to be blasting the K-pop. Great. <laughs> uh, before we go, I have to ask you, obviously, the serious question and the one you get, I'm sure, asked all of the time. Uh, will yeah. you be the next Bhutto in Pakistani parliament? You know, I I always have said that politics is something I'm fascinated by. I always have been. But I have this other love, which is books and the written word. And so long as I'm able to talk about the politics I wish to talk about through my writing, then I'm pretty happy doing that. Let's hit the K-pop. <laughs> Fatima Vuto, thank you so much. Thank you. My thanks to Fatima Vuto. Her book, The Runaways, is out now and published by Viking. The Big Interview was produced by Yolene Goffin, researched by Rory Goodrick and Christy Evans, and edited by Kenya Scarlett and Cassie Gilpin. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.